Welcome to the Inside Wim podcast. The people behind the science at the MRC with the Royal Institute of Molecular Medicine at the University of Oxford, an institute we affectionately know as the WIM. I'm Catherine Seed, the WIM's Public Engagement and Communications Officer. And I am Mona Basuni, a postdoctoral researcher in the Ovarian Cancer Group, led by Professor Ahmed at the WIM. This podcast features our interview with Dr. Catherine Robson. Catherine just retired in December 2022 after spending 40 years working at Oxford. It was so wonderful to sit down with her and learn about her research journey, the beginnings of the Institute and her plans for retirement. Catherine has had such a broad-ranging career with research spanning malaria, hemochromatosis and population genetics. First, we talked about her path into science after completing a degree in biochemistry at University College London. I've completed my undergraduate honours degree in biochemistry in 1976 and then was fortunate enough to be awarded a scholarship from the Burroughs Wellcome Foundation to do a PhD on the foot and mouth disease virus at the Animal Virus Research Institute at Purbright. Could you paint a picture of what it was like in the foot and mouth lab? Very bizarre is the way I would describe it. You ended up being a terribly clean student. You, the whole of the foot and mouth laboratory was a containment level three facility. So basically you went into work in your home clothes, you stripped down, walked through a dry shower barrier, put on clothes that they provided you with, and then you got dressed and you went into work. And when you left work, you showered and you washed your hair. And then you put your own clothes on, dried your hair and went home. It did mean that you didn't actually need to take a shower or a bath at home. And a lot of your laundry, therefore, was done for you. So it was it was a bonus that you wouldn't necessarily understand when the, uh, you were given the post. What were your next steps after your doctorate? I went to a conference at the end of my second year and was fortunate enough to meet someone who gave me some, again, very wise advice. And that was to apply for a postdoc then rather than wait till I'd finished my PhD. So I wrote five letters to the labs I thought I wanted to go and do a postdoc in and I received four offers. Um, And the lab at the top of my list was Berto Malley's Department of Cell Biology at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. So that's where I ended up for three and a half years. And I learnt how to clone and sequence genes. And the project I had was to clone and sequence the gene for the enzyme phenylalanine hydroxylase, which is what is mutated in the inherited disorder phenylketonuria. Was at the time believed PKU was believed to be a disease of north northern Western Europeans. It was not thought to be elsewhere, and because my boss was Chinese, he had Chinese contacts, and it turned out that ten percent of adults in Chinese mental institutions were there because they had undiagnosed PKU. It's now diagnosed because they know to look for it. I started applying for jobs back in the UK and there was a job advertised in Oxford led by David Weatherall and it was to clone and sequence Globin genes. So I thought I can clone and sequence any gene because that's what I've been doing in Houston. 
So I applied and got a very lovely letter back saying, terribly sorry, the post has been filled. P.S. Would you like to work on cloning and sequencing malaria genes? So I wrote back immediately and said, yes, please, because it linked my interest in infectious disease with the experience I'd got in working in cloning and sequencing genes. So I arrived in Oxford in April 1983. We ended up making expression libraries and someone from my Purbright days was generous enough to make me two very, very long oligonucleotides uh, at no expense. Um, and we used them to screen the library. And we found the gene that we intended to find. And we found a gene we weren't intending to find. And the gene we weren't intending to find turned out not to be known about at the time. But it shared with the circumsporozoite protein the same motif, EWSPCSVTCG. And that's a very unusual motif. It's found in a number of other proteins, such as thrombospondin and properdin. And it turns out that both trap thrombospondin-related anonymous protein, we now call it adhesive protein, and circumsporozoite protein are on the surface of the sporozoite. And the sporozoite is the form of the parasite that the female mosquito injects when she has a blood meal. And it has to find its way to, to a hepatocyte, which it infects. And it then takes seven days to go through the life cycle to release merozoites. And the merozoites then have to find a red cell, infect a red cell. And then you have a 48-hour cycle where new merozoites are released from an infected red cell. And what we didn't know at the time was that TRAP is a key protein in how the sporozoite moves. So think of snail and slug trails that you see. That's exactly what happens with both circumsporozoite protein and TRAP. So it is key in how the sporozoite moves and finds and recognizes is the hepatocyte. And it's now ended up being in vaccine trials. So a uh, research apart, can you tell us about David Wither, well, as a scientist and um, a person? David was the loveliest person you could ever wish to meet. He was generous with his time and generous with his science. And he was very, very insightful. And this was the advantage he had as a clinician because he understood the disease. And he also understood that if you were doing good science, you needed to be allowed to good, do good science because that way there would be discoveries made. And during the time that we were on level seven in the JR, when we were in the Nuffield Department of Medicine, there were a huge number of breakthroughs made. And that was basically because he left people to get on and do interesting science. And you arrived before the Institute took shape? The, when I arrived in Oxford, the concept of the Institute of Molecular Medicine was being hatched. And where the Institute now is, was a white building called the Nuffield Institute for Medical Research. And that forms the two floors of the white building of the current Institute. The rest was a car park and some pine trees. 
So the Nuffield Institute for Medical Research was used by a number of researchers. The only one who stayed on was someone called Colin Jones. Everybody else was rehomed. And the building was stripped internally back to the bare brick and totally refurbished. And the first people to move in were the neurosciences group who came up from London. There was a group led by Andrew McMichael who were coming from surgery, who were immunologists. And you had the malaria group who worked on level seven who moved in. I had different space on level seven, so I didn't actually move with the malaria group. Uh, I moved in April 1989 when the brand building was completed. What was special was everybody was using the same sort of techniques. And so they were, some were using it to study immunological processes, others hematological and others infectious diseases and others genetics. And you have to realise the time between 1986 and 1989 was when PCR came of age. It had just been discovered. So rather than having to do a whole lot of basic cloning, M13 as a vector sequencing system had come really very much online. So sequencing was much more efficient than when we were doing Maxim Gilbert sequencing. PCR meant that once you got some sequence, you could use PCR as a process to choose where you wanted to sequence. You didn't have to play the fragment game or the cloning game. You could actually just move your primers along. So, um, you know, uh, there was a period in time where I was sequencing the trap gene in different malaria isolates. And I did 60 KBs worth of sequencing in probably three months, which would previously have been absolutely unheard of, but it was because technology had moved on. And but I assume that's a lot easier when you're surrounded by people are using... It's a lot easier when you've got people around who may have the kit you might need to borrow because there weren't that many PCR machines around. So how do you then move from malaria to hemochromatosis? That is an interesting story. At the time, we had a quinquennial MHU review and we thought the malaria gene trap was exciting, but we couldn't convince the MRC that it had anywhere to go. We didn't know what it did. And it wasn't until we could actually play transgenics that we knew what it was. So it was felt that I was a bit of an outlier in the molecular hematology unit and therefore I needed to do something that was more related one of the issues with thalassemia patients is they have secondary iron overload due to the high turnover of red cells and, and problems with erythropoiesis. Hemochromatosis is a disease of primary iron overload where there is the inability to sense iron levels correctly and so you take up too much iron from your diet you don't have a way of secreting iron other than by blood loss. So if in the case of thalassemia, you're having to give people blood transfusions, you're giving them the extra iron in the form of the blood transfusion, they've got no way to get rid of the excess. Okay. So the hemochromatosis gene um, was not known at the time. 
It was known genetically that it was on chromosome 6 because there was very close linkage to the MHC class 1 gene HLA. A. And if you talk to people at the time, they went, oh, it's going to be within 50 KB because it's so tightly linked. We did a very key experiment, but at the time we weren't fully aware of how key it was. It turned out that when the gene was cloned, it was actually five megabases away from HLA-A, not 50 kilobases. So basically we were looking in an unmapped part of chromosome 6 and nobody was looking in the right place. So we pointed X marks the spot, you're on the wrong island. Um, a big pharmaceutical company cloned it. They really threw everything at it. And it turns out that it is primarily a disease of Northern Europeans. 80% of people who develop the disease have a homozygous for the same mutation. It's known colloquially as the C282Y mutation. The protein is nothing like anybody expected. It looks like an MHC class 1 gene. It doesn't have a groove for peptide. And the mutation actually results in the failure of the third loop to actually form a disulfide bond. Um, and it has a role in regulating transferrin and transferrin receptor. And that's how it works. But basically, in looking at hemochromatosis, we have uncovered, and we is not just me, it's, it's a group who had interest in hemochromatosis. We have uncovered a pathway of handling iron, discovering things like a little peptide hormone, hepcidin, which is for iron what insulin is for glucose. And it's the hepcidin that is made by hepatocytes that controls how much iron is taken up from the gut. And failure to make hepcidin results in a very severe form of juvenile hemochromatosis. Um, and there are other genes that we've identified that are fully penetrant. Um, some are autosomal dominant and affect iron uptake from the gut. And others give you juvenile hemochromatosis. So we've uncovered a pathway. Um, and that's been very exciting. And it's collecting the patients that have allowed us to do this. How on earth does that then move to looking at human migration? As the human tissue designated individual, I ended up taking custody of David Weatherall's DNA freezer of the South Pacific. And there were people who wanted to throw it out and I had to fight long and hard for it not to be thrown out. And David wanted it kept. And David was happy for me to manage it. And at the same time, we had three different requests, one via Doug, one via someone who'd worked with John Clegg, who'd worked very closely with David and had been involved in working with some of the samples previously, and one with David Weatherall. And everybody wanted to do use the same technique, but they wanted to use the same technique, but to get a different result. And this sounds a bit bizarre. We had population linguistic people who wanted to look at DNA patterns using single nucleotide polymorphisms to look at whether there were polymorphisms linked to linguistic patterns. We had other people wanting to look at population migration and archaeology in the South Pacific and other groups who 
were studying infectious disease in South, in the Pacific populations, and they needed to know whether in fact genetically the population they were studying was more genetically at risk than the surrounding islands. But the way, the technique everybody needed to use was single nucleotide polymorphisms. So I said, hey folks, we're only gonna thaw this DNA once. It's very, very precious. We don't know whether the SNP analysis will work, but in fact, we were fortunate because the DNA had been collected in the 1980s and was very concentrated. It was perfectly fine. And because the three groups were made to collaborate, instead of doing a low-level SNP analysis, we did a much deeper SNP analysis because, and we all collaborated. And that has led to a number of publications over the last few years in journals such as Science and Nature. So I may have been the safety officer, but I was doing some science in the background. Yeah. And it's now going it's off for sequencing. So it's going off for whole genome sequencing. And the, the point you need to understand is that we had the ethics that the samples have been collected under in the 1980s was for thalassemia studies. So we had to re we couldn't reconsent because the samples had been totally anonymized. We went to the university committee, Oxtrek, to say, what should we do? And they said, it's actually unethical not to reuse the samples because this population has been underrepresented in all the global genetic studies and there is a lot for them to benefit. So we looked at the consent that John Clegg had got in his filing cabinet and there were letters from ministers of health for this island and that island and that government. So we contacted the embassies and they said, no, please feel free to reuse the samples. We've got too much to gain. How did you move to the health and safety role? How I got into health and safety was the university insists that each department and each building has a health and safety committee. And Andrew McMichael was the director of the Institute from 2000 when David Weatherall retired until 2012 when Doug Higgs took over. And he asked me to the, be the Institute safety officer. And at that time, it was basically chairing three committee meetings a year and not much else. Um, things have moved on on the safety front and it became much, much, much more of a hands-on job. And we had a QQR in 2000 and it was the first QQR Doug had. And the MRC needed to cut budgets and the budget they cut was mine. So my science, my hemochromatosis went... By then, we were handing over the hemochromatosis diagnostic service that we'd built up to the NHS. And that has expanded such that they now do parallel sequencing of six genes that could be mutated at once. So we've seen what was lab being translated into diagnostics. So that's revolutionized that. So in a way, it wasn't a bad time, but I'd also started because Doug had asked me to start doing studies as the genes expressed in red cells. So we were working, doing some transcriptome work, but it wasn't far enough progressed. So I ended up, the group closed, and I ended up doing health and safety. And at the same time, the human tissue authority legislation came about. How did things shift 
as of March 2020 and what work was going behind the scenes. We had to get risk assessments in place for working with COVID. Nobody in this building had any experience with COVID. Now, that was another thing that I had to be able to bring to the table is I breed pedigree cats as a hobby. And there is a condition, infectious condition in cats called feline infectious ferritinitis. And that is due to a coronavirus. So I was more aware of what coronaviruses can do and how coronaviruses can mutate than probably anybody else in the building. So I brought that. So we were working 24-7 to get risk assessments in place, get people trained up and put controls in place that meant people could come into the building safely. It meant sticking up signs everywhere, keeping everybody two metres apart, putting in electronic controls for booking space, which meant that people could emotionally feel safe when they were working because they were going to be under stress to get through the experiments and get the data that was required. And you probably have quite a good overview. What are some of the highlights that just stand out from your mind in terms of the type of COVID research that went on? The number of publications and the huge collaborations that went right the way across Oxford. Um, I mean, science is competitive, but you have to realise everybody in Oxford worked together. And that was really quite amazing. You had some people who were B-cell experts who were doing the B-cell work. The T-cell expertise was in the Institute, so all the T-cell stuff was done. And that was a major strength of what Oxford was able to offer. So of all these thrills and research experiences, which one is your favourite? I would say probably trap. Um once we realized how important it was and we'd we'd always believed because of the central portion was so heavily conserved and a lot of malaria genes are very very sequence variant you and it had this unusual sequence because you don't shove tryptophan into a protein just for the sake of it it's a very expensive amino acid and it's got a very bizarre shape so it's there for a reason and by doing some sequence alignments, I realized that we had a magnesium binding site and it it was a protein made up of various domains. And therefore, it had a function. What we didn't know until too late for me was what that function was. Which was? Basically, parasite, sporozoite migration. Um, and I know you've been a... a, a a significant voice in driving forward public engagement throughout the whim. How did you come to public engagement and how, how has that shifted? That came about because of the work on hemochromatosis in that the country has a very proactive hemochromatosis society and those researching on hemochromatosis were always invited to address the society at their AGM when it was held in London. So every June I would go down to the Hemochromatosis Society, talk to patients, get to meet patients, give them advice, explain what research was being done, how the diagnostic service was being improved. And we had two lots of funding from the European Commission. The second lot of funding was the funding that I managed and it was a team of 11 investigators across Europe. 
And that was to increase the awareness of the disease because treatment's dead easy. You take the excess iron off in blood and the blood service can use the blood if you haven't got any other complications. So it's a win-win situation. But presentation is very vague. It's, I feel a bit unwell. I feel a bit tired. And you had to move it up the GP sort of, well, you're 40, cut down the alcohol, bit more exercise, eat a better diet. And so we were offering free free diagnostic service. And that sort of brought alive what was going on. And because of that, and then actually only doing health and safety for a day and a half a week with the HTA, I had time on my hands um, when I wasn't doing health and safety. And we had at the time a computer, a member of staff on the IT team who was on the PTA of his local primary school in Abingdon. And that school had on a Friday afternoon a program which was to bring in outsiders and I had to prepare five one-hour slots. So one of the slots was on genetics and because of the cats, I used the cats and I used Lego because that was what they had in school as genes and we made chromosomes from building Lego together. (laughs) And the different colours were different genes. When you say cats, did you actually take cats in? Yes, I did take cats in. (laughs) I had at the time a cream point aurora who'd been mated to a seal point. And cream point females can only produce, if they're mated to a cat that's not ginger, can only produce tortoiseshell females. And there were three tortoiseshell females in the litter. And needless to say, one of the children went, please, miss, why don't they look like mummy or daddy? (laughs) Because I'd bought photographs in. And I then had to explain the process of X inactivation to nine, 10 and 11 year olds. Well, on a tortoiseshell, the X inactivation is random and you see it as ginger and colour in different spaces. So I was able to explain very easily to them and they all got the concept of X inactivation. And I had to explain to them that X inactivation had first been described by Mary Lyon at Harwell and Abingdon, that school in Abingdon had parents working at Harwell. And what, what do you think the value of public engagement is? I think it improves people's science. I, another course I did with the MLC was basically if you actually talk, if you're designing studies, if you talk to the patients, there may be something that actually costs you nothing to put into a study, but is actually going to strengthen the science of the work that you're doing and its application to helping treating patients. It can be just putting an extra question into a consent form or an extra question into a circular information sort of you know we would like to hear from you if you've got bony ankles because it turns out that in hemochromatosis most patients who develop the disease end up with a particular bony bit to their ankle and it's unique to them so what wasn't known until somebody asked was that actually it's almost diagnostic of the disease so if it's somebody who turns up in a rheumatology type clinic if they feel it or they need an ankle replacing or whatever, you you can say, actually, you've got hemochromatosis that's not been recognised, but it's actually joining up those dots and 
in in many cases, you need the patient. It's a two-way. It's not doctor-patient. It's patient-doctor and patient-researcher as well. Where are you at and what are you looking forward to do? I'm retiring in 10 days' time. Okay, so what's next? What's next um, is I'm a mad keen gardener, so I've got stuff to do in the garden. I have finally bred the elusive lilac tawdy tabby point Berman, who I took to a show two weeks ago, and I will be showing her next year when she's an adult. Um, I So I've got the cats, I've got the garden, and I will do some museums, galleries and gardens. This has been Inside Wim. If you like the podcast, please subscribe, like or review.